Let me just remind you, there is a fussy children slash baby room right next door in the church house. We have a live video feed of the service. So if you got babies or little ones who are just ready to stretch and run around a little bit or, or work out those vocal cords, you can head next door. We have a live video feed for you. We are glad to be back from our great adventure out west. We drove 5,200 plus miles, our family, to go out to Utah and back. Man, we live in such a gorgeous country. Such a great trip. And we didn't kill each other as a family. We got along really well. It's amazing. So thank you for your prayers. We had a great two weeks off, but we are so glad to be back. We're coming back to the book of Job. We've been away for a few weeks now, and we're coming back uh, into our ongoing studies here. And really, this morning, we're concluding, I guess, the first round of exchanges that Job has with his so-called friends, though with friends like these, right, who needs enemies? We have Eliphaz, who we met. We met Bildad, and this morning, we meet Zophar. And you remember Job's situation. Just let me refresh you. Job is a godly man. Actually, God says of him, the Lord says of him, that he is the most righteous man on the earth. And yet, God is allowed, and God's... Sovereign, mysterious providence has allowed Job to be tempted, to be tried by Satan himself. Job has lost his children, he's lost his wealth, he's lost all of his livelihood, his wife has deserted him, he's, his businesses have collapsed, he's sitting essentially in the ashes of his former life, he's pouring out his brokenness and his grief and his confusion before the Lord as he sits there and he scrapes the sores on his skin that Job tells us, the book of Job tells us with pieces of pottery. And then along at that point, as Job is at his lowest possible moment, his three friends come and help him descend even a little further, if you will, as they come and give him their so-called advice. And so here in chapter 11, we're introduced to the perspective of Zophar, the Namathite, he is the third of Job's friend. He accuses Job. His main tact against Job is he tells Job and accuses Job that, Job, you are very arrogant. Now, like Eliphaz and his friend Bildad before him, Zophar calls upon Job to repent. Job, if you would just repent. Job, if you would only repent, you would turn from yourself, turn from whatever sin you've committed, and you would turn back to the Lord. Everything will come back to normal, Job. And then we'll see in chapters 12 through 14, Job responds. And as we've already seen, Job's response after his friends give him advice is always this response of sorrow and hurt at Job's friends' treatment of him. And then we're going to see Job respond as not only he responds to Zophar and he, re and he rebukes and corrects Zophar, but we see Job respond and he turns to the Lord and he cries out to the Lord for help and deliverance. That's what we read this morning in our confession of sin. It's a David cries out to the Lord. You see that so many times in the Psalms where they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And many times what you see Job and Job's response, they're almost like Psalms where Job cries out to the Lord God for deliverance and for help. And we'll see in Job's response this morning, nestled right in the smack dab in the middle of Job's response, we'll see one of the, those marvelous places that you see all throughout the book of Job. Job responds, he expresses his confidence about eternity, his confidence about life after death. In fact, we'll see this morning, this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. So I wish we had time this morning. I can't keep you here for hours. 
to look through chapters 11 through 14 so you can do a collective sigh of relief. We're only gonna read chapter 11 this morning and then we'll, let me encourage you though to keep your Bibles open. If you have a Bible, Pew Bible, there's ones in the rows before you. If you have your own personal Bible, turn to Job 11. Keep your finger in there because we're gonna reference 12 through 14 throughout uh, my sermon this morning. So let's read Job 11 together this morning. Folks, this is God's word for us. It is living and active and let's come to his holy word together. Job 11. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, should a multitude of words go unanswered, Job? And a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble, I mean, how offensive is that? You don't go to a friend and say, your babble. And listen, should your babble silence men when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, Job, you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you that he would tell you the secrets of his wisdom. For he, God, is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves, Job. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, that's grave or death. Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and it's broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's cold is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away from you, Job. Let not your injustice dwell in, in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish and you will be secure and will not fear. You will not forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security Job, you will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. People will come to you for advice, Job. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All the way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. If you remember in John's gospel, we studied John, but this is a very common section in John's gospel. John chapter nine, do you remember when the disciples were walking along? And I've mentioned this before. They're walking along, they meet the blind man right, and they see him and they think, gosh, this poor guy is begging, he's blind, something's wrong here. Obviously, he's very poor, man, he's really in a terrible shape, and they're thinking, gosh, let's go to Jesus. Jesus, why is this guy blind? Is he blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned that he was born blind? Do you see the operating assumption of the disciples' question in John chapter 9? What's their operative assumption. What was the culture of the time? The culture of the time, you know, here's this blind guy. He's incredibly disadvantaged through the whole course of his life. He's destitute. He's broken. He's begging. The disciples here are looking for this explanation for his terrible suffering that they see. And they, they come to Jesus and they say, okay, obviously either this blind guy sinned or his parents sinned because he's blind. What's their basic assumption? Their basic assumption is Rabbi, who sinned, his parents or this guy? Their basic assumption is that bad things only happen to what? Bad people. Bad things only happen to what? Say it. Bad people, right. You see how they reason there. If he's suffering, 
There must be some sin root that God is punishing him for. Bad people deserve bad things to happen to them. Now that's not terribly uncommon for us to have that attitude today, is it? If you're honest with yourself, don't you have that attitude sometimes? You know, you, 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 you see somebody suffer. Here's one. You see somebody, with, see somebody whose lifestyle you certainly don't agree with. And so you're sometimes tempted to think, here's what you think. It's the knee-jerk think, thought, not think, knee-jerk thought. Well, they're just getting what they what? Deserve, right. When someone reaches out to you for help, maybe they're poor, right? Maybe they're marginalized. Aren't we often, and I'll speak for me, I am often tempted to withhold help to them until I feel like somehow they are qualified to receive that help. That happened to me just this past Monday in Aldi. I have a confession to make to you. I lied Monday. I was in the Aldi parking lot. Uh, A gentleman approached me, pretty well-dressed. I mean, not well-dressed, but he wasn't wasn't disheveled. And I'd actually seen him kind of hit some other cars, and I thought, okay, God, what is he going to do? You know, I'm I'm like Papa Bear, nobody. My children were with me, but yet I was still kind of on guard, you know. And he comes up, and and he's nice. He said, hey, sir, do you have any spare change? You know what my first word out of my mouth was? No. I lied. I had about five or six dollar bills in my pocket. I said, no, all I have is a credit card. I lied to him. All I, all I had to do, I mean, even if I didn't give him money, which I had, and just talk to him for a minute, and ask, him, ask to pray for him, give him a couple of dollars, but I didn't, I lied. Just because I'm thinking that this guy hasn't qualified for my help. You know, we, even though we might know better, we, st- we, st- we tend to think and infer that there's this causal relationship between suffering and sin. And so we want to link relief to righteousness, don't we? I will give you relief if you deserve it. Bad people suffer, then the opposite of that, what we would believe is good people deserve our help. Bad people suffer, they get what they deserve, good people deserve our help. That's how we often function sometimes, isn't it? That's certainly what the disciples thought, wasn't it, in John chapter nine, and that's definitely what Zophar thinks here in Job chapter 11 as he responds to Job and his sufferings. But we know, we read, we read Job 1 and 2 at the beginning. Job is not suffering. Is Job being punished for some specific sin? Yes or no? No, he is not. He is absolutely not. Job makes that clear. The book of Job makes that clear. The writer of the book of Job makes that abundantly clear. God, the Lord himself says that, makes that abundantly clear that Job is not being punished for some kind of sin. Job is protesting his innocence. And his friends come in and they, they begin to argue with him. They say, Job, obviously something's wrong. You're not innocent. Then Zophar comes in and he joins the conversation after Job has responded to his other friends, Bildad and Eliphaz. Zophar's kind of been standing back. Remember, they all three came to visit Job while Job was grieving. And the only right thing they did the entire time was they sat for a week with Job in silence. That's probably the best thing they did was kept their mouth shut. And, was just, and we're just there with him, perhaps providing for some of his physical needs. But Zophar, he's been sitting back kind of all smug, right? Listening to Eliphaz, listening to Bildad, listening to Job's response to those two, form, or two current friends. And then Zophar, he, he finally, he snaps. 
He can't, he can't handle it anymore. He's been listening to, this, to the arguments of his friend. He can't, he can't stand it. He feels compelled to respond at what he considers Job's foolish talk. Look at chapter 11, verses three and four, if you've got your Bibles open. You'll see what he thinks of Job's speech so far. Should your babble, I can't believe he said that. Job, should your babble, blah, 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 silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure. I'm clean in God's eyes. He, he, he doesn't really think very much of Job's response so far, does he? It's babble, Job. It's mockery to talk like this, Job. You deserve worse. And if you look at the last clause, the last part of verse six in chapter 11, you'll actually just see how far-reaching, according to Zophar, how far-reaching Job has misunderstood what God's doing in all of Job's sufferings. You know, Job has been arguing, maintaining, he's innocent, I'm innocent. My sufferings, because I'm innocent, my sufferings are unjust. That's what Job's message is again and again. It's unjust because I am innocent. What does Zophar say on the, on the contrary? Zophar says, oh, Job, God is being amazingly merciful to you. You deserve much, much worse, Job. How can it get worse? He's lost everything. And on top of that, he's got these sores and these bulls and he's scraping off the the wounded flesh and the dead flesh with potsherds. Look at what he says, verse six. Zophar says, know then that God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves, Job. I can't believe he says this. Listen to what he says. Count yourself fortunate, Job, that God is being so lenient and he's inflicting such small judgments upon you. In a sense, that sounds right. Theologically, strictly speaking, what Zophar says is right. Every sin that we commit on every person who's lived on earth deserves God's wrath, God's curse, God's judgment. Job here is a sinner among sinners. And yet we remember from Job chapter one and two that Job is again not being punished because of his sins, right? And so Zophar's response here, instead of educating, instead of enlightening Job to the truth and to the justice of God, nothing more, Zophar is doing nothing more than coming in and sticking a knife in Job's heart and twisting it, right, and saying to him, Job, you should be thankful. You know, your wife's left you, your children are dead, your life is in ruins, you're sitting in the ashes in your home, you're covered in sores, you're in agony. Job, you should be thankful, it's, an it's a dreadful, dreadful thing to say to someone you profess to call a friend, right? And then Zophar, and on top of that, and, and on top of insulting Job and telling Job he should be thankful, he then, Zophar then, decides to teach Job a thing or two about God. Look at verses seven through 12, if you'll look here for a moment. Now what Zophar says about God is true enough, as far as that goes, but we'll see that Zophar ultimately ends up distorting the very character and nature of God. Look at verses seven through 12 with me. He says to Job, Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is he higher than heaven? What can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? Its, it's measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? What Zophar is saying about God's inscrutable wisdom and almighty power, what Zophar is saying is right on. It's spot on theologically. 
You see, the problem here is not that he's teaching theological error at this point. What's the problem? What's so far's problem here? He's giving truth without what? Without love. He's theologically precise. He's theologically astute, but he's giving Zophar truth without love. I need to knock on Reformed Presbyterians or Reformed folks in general. Often we have, we think we have the corner on the truth and often uh, Reformed folks are very theologically astute and precise, but sometimes we don't have a lot of love, do we? I think Zophar, he's that. He's astute, he's precise, but he's giving truth without love. It's doctrine without compassion. And I've, I've probably, I've had to learn that the hard way. You probably have had to learn that the hard way too. It's all too easy, isn't it? Isn't it easy to be accurate and obnoxious all at the same time? You ever been there? You've been accurate but obnoxious. You know, the Lord puts someone in your life whom you love, it's a friend, it's a family member, and you're very highly accurate with what you say, but you're obnoxious. <laughs> you're just obnoxious. You think you have fulfilled your duty for the Lord and, you know, the, God's placed these folks in your life and you fulfilled your duty, you said the true things, but you've forgotten, folks, you've forgotten the great, perhaps not perhaps, the greater burden to love. Now, you don't divorce love and truth. You don't do that but you do share truth. You are accurate, filled with compassion and mercy. And that's a very easy temptation for us to fall into, to be accurate theologically, precise theologically, and to, to exhort folks whom we love, but at the same time, we can't divorce that from compassion and love, right? what Zophar, that's the trap that Zophar falls into. He divorces love from theological preciseness and accuracy. Did you notice that? Now we've met, for, and also notice this, on top of all these other sufferings, you know, Job, poor Job has had to live, live with this dreadful carrying ons of Zophar, and the, Zophar seems to be like the insufferable know-it-all, isn't he? And he accuses Job, then he accuses Job of precisely the same sin which Zophar himself is guilty of. Did you notice that? Have you met, have you, we've probably all met folks like that, haven't we? They project onto others the character flaws that they avoid dealing with in themselves. You ever met folks like that? Maybe that's you. You know, Zophar accuses Job of arrogance. Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than the heavens. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol, the grave. What can you know? Who do you think you are, Job? He's so, so far, he's so arrogant. And yet in his own arrogance and all of this, it's really very difficult. He's missing it. He doesn't even see his own arrogance. You can see the arrogance of Zophar most clearly in the sneering barbs that he delivers to Job in verse 12. Look at verse 12. I can't believe he said this. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. In other words, what he's saying is, Job, when, when a donkey gives birth to human babies to an airhead like you, Job, you'll finally, finally start to come to terms and make sense of this. That's what he's saying. When pigs fly, Job, a blockhead like you might begin to listen to some common sense from me and your two other friends. It's a good thing I came along here to help you, Job. <laughs> In fact, he begins to say to Job, Job, if you would just repent, 
all your troubles will begin to evaporate like the mist in the morning sun. I mean, he's so verbose and so poetic. In fact, people are going to stop, start flocking to you for answers, Job. You'll became, become a great man once again, Job, if you would just repent. You see that? It's a beautiful picture of possibility that, and blessing that Zophar holds out to poor suffering Job. Verse 15, surely when you lift up your face without, you'll lift up your face without blemish. You remember Job's covered here in open source. Job, just acknowledge that you're wrong, Job, and then all your wounds, Job, will be healed. You will be secure and you won't fear. You'll forget your misery. You know, it's hard to imagine in the depths of Job's suffering and loss. It's hard to imagine that, that he would say those kind of things. Now, you remember, who is it that is assaulting, from the beginning of the book of Job, who is it that is assaulting Job? Satan, right? God, in his providence and sovereignty, allows Satan to assault Job. We see that very clearly in the opening chapters of the book of Job. But then, after chapters one and two, Satan seems to disappear from the book of Job. But has he really disappeared? Has Satan really disappeared? We're in chapter 11 now through 14. Has he disappeared? No, I, th- I still think you can hear his subtle, devious voice here. He's applying all of the manipulative techniques and psychological tools that he can muster to cause Job to abandon his integrity. You hear the whispering, sulfurous lies of the serpent, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, did on the lips of Zophar, the Namathite. It's actually the echo of what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. Do you remember that when Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts Jesus in the wilderness? What does he say? Jesus, all of the kingdoms, everything that you see, I will give you if you, if you forsake your integrity, if you worship me. See, Zophar is saying to Job, I can give you all of this, Job. I can give you all of this that you've lost. I can restore to you. That's what Zophar is telling him which is a lie, if you would just forsake your integrity, if you would just distort the nature and the very character of God, join me and your friends Eliphaz and Bildad in our point of view because our point of view, Job, is right. God, Job, don't listen to what God says. Listen to what we're telling you, Job. God is some kind of mechanical justice machine where you, you input your behavior, you turn the crank and automatically out comes either blessing or judgments in this life on a one-to-one ratio kind of deal. <laughs> if you'll just say things like that, if you'll forsake your integrity, Job, if you'll stop your protestations of innocence, Job, and everything that you've lost will be restored to you if you would just repent and say that we're right. You see this dark satanic snare being laid, this trap being laid for Job. And here's the strategy of Zophar at the heart of it. Please, if you don't get anything, listen to this. Listen to the counsel, Zophar. Here's the heart of the counsel that Zophar is giving to Job. He's saying that, Job, let me suggest to you that there's a way for you to get peace in your life if you would just remove the mystery. I'll say that again. There's a way for you to get peace in your life, Job, if you would just remove the mystery. If you would just resolve the uncertainty in your life, Job, finally you can get some peace. Don't you hate it when there's uncertainty in your life? Here, I'll, I'll peg you. 
Pretend you're in middle school once again and your teacher comes to you and whispers, hey, the principal wants to see you. Are you filled with uncertainty? Are you filled with anxiety? <laughs> I can see. And you're walking down to the office filled with uncertainty. Does that interrupt your comfort and your security? Absolutely. We hate uncertainty in our lives, don't we? We hate it. Nothing more bumps into our idols of security and comfort than uncertainty. And that's what we try to do. We try to make sure that everything is certainty. If we would, just, if we would resolve the uncertainty in our life, we'll be at peace. That sure sounds like a nice, clean, clear-cut vision of reality, but it isn't reality, folks. What Zophar is preaching, the gospel that Zophar is preaching is bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, Job. It's that simple. Actually, in verse 14, when Zophar says, if your iniquity is in your hand, Job, put it far away. The word that Zophar uses for iniquity here implies ill-gotten gain or deceptive behavior. In other words, he's saying, listen, Job, let no injustice dwell in your tent, no longer in your land. Put it far away from you. Do you see what Zophar's insinuation here? It's very subtle, but his insinuation is that Job, maybe perhaps all the wealth that you've received over the years is because of ill-gotten gain. You probably didn't come by it honestly, Job. You were a shady businessman, Job. That's why you're suffering, you see. And so once you, you repent, Job, you won't suffer. You've sinned, and that's why you're suffering. If you would repent, Job, you will be blessed. You'd be blessed, Job. That's why you're suffering, because you must have gotten stuff in shady deals. You know, it's a real temptation, isn't it, that many of us wrestle with, even in the darkest nights of our souls, when we, we might know better theologically, we might know better intellectually, but sometimes, even though we know the answers theologically, even though we might know the answers intellectually, sometimes it's so overwhelming to ask the question, Lord, what have I done? God, where have I blown it? Where have I screwed up? What did I do to deserve this? Where did I go wrong, Lord? And again, you hear the temptation of the evil one saying, oh, if you could, you could I'll give you the answers. You can figure this out. One thing, if you take away anything that you hear today, listen to this one sentence. There are some mysteries in your life that the Lord does not, will not allow you to unravel. Beloved, there are some mysteries in your life that the Lord does not promise that he will unravel and give you the answers to. What does the scripture say? That the secret things belong to the Lord and what has been revealed belongs to us and to our children. There are mysteries that we must simply live with, isn't it, believer? It's true. There are sufferings and trials that come your, your, in your way and you, you, sometimes you're not gonna know other, on the other, until the other side of heaven what, what it was for, what the mysteries were for. And it's in these moments that, folks, we face a choice, don't we? Either we will bow before God himself as he is presented to us in the scripture. We acknowledge that, God, you are just. And we face the mystery of our circumstances without trying to resolve the apparent contradiction between what's going on. But we say, God, I will kiss you. I kiss the hand that brings discipline upon me. God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why you have brought me into this hard, sore, painful place. But, oh, Father, I trust you. 
I don't understand it, God, but I cling to you, Jesus. I mean, that's what we do week in and week out, folks. When we worship, when we sing these songs, we're declaring publicly, God, I cling to you. I don't always understand, but I need you. And I trust you. Help me to trust you. Help me to believe you and know that you're good, even in the midst of the hard right now. Oh, beloved, I pray that's what you do. Because if you don't, then you fall to satanic temptation. And then you try, just, you try your hardest to resolve the mysteries yourself. And in the end, when you do that, you end up distorting the very character and nature of God as Zophar has done. Zophar is saying, Job, if you would just try to unravel these mysteries on your own, it's simple. If you just repent, it'll all be good. But Job, God didn't promise these mysteries to be unraveled to Job, did he? And that's the problem with so many of these false gospels that are being, are being taught and preached and read these days, like the health and wealth gospel. What does the, the health and wealth or the prosperity gospel promise you? All the hurts and the mysteries of life will be taken care of if what? You just have more faith. And God will give you the desires of your heart, which is wealth and cars and house and bills paid and everything you want. That's how they try to resolve the mysteries of life, by money. And there, there's so many different facets of it. Zophar's teaching here, his advice to Job is he's reducing, Zophar is reducing God to this cosmic slot machine, right? You know, you plug in your relevant behavior, you turn the crank and out pops either blessing, blessing or suffering. And sometimes when you're hurting, when everything's going wrong, right, and you're, you're being, you think you're being punished, or we start to say to ourselves, well, gosh, if, if I must not be praying enough, or I'm not reading the Bible enough, or I'm not giving enough to the church, if I could just do enough, I can somehow, like a lever, leverage a blessing and cause God to reverse his stance towards me. Beloved, it's, it's better, it's so much better, brothers, to embrace the mystery, to embrace God and not try to resolve Resolve it on your own. Don't distort the character of God. It's better, folks, it's better, it's not easy, but it's better to bow under the pain and under the unknowability of God's mysterious, hard providences and to acknowledge, God, that you are good and I don't know how I'm gonna reconcile my suffering with your goodness, but God, you are God and I trust you. And it's so much better, beloved, to do that than to embrace the lie. Well, I have a ton more to go, but I'm gonna stop here. We'll, we'll pick up next week. But let me leave you with this. Let me, sneak peek for next week. Hey, that rhymes. Sneak peek for next week. All right. I'm a poet and I didn't know it. Sorry, okay, I could keep going. Sorry, all right. I love Job's response to Zophar. Zophar responds to Job chapter 11. Then we get to chapter 13, 14, 15. Look at chapter 13, verse 15. Listen to Job's response. Though he slay me, I hope in him. Though he slay me, the Father, God, I hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face. It's okay. When you're suffering, when God is slaying you, you can argue before the Lord. He's a big boy, he can handle it. Get on your knees and you pour out your suffering before the Lord. Do it, that's fine. I will argue my ways to his face, Job says. 
this will be my salvation and the godless shall not come before him. Though, and then he repeats himself again, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Beloved, how do you do that? Who else could have said, you know, Job said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Who else said that in the Garden of Gethsemane before he faced the cross? Because ultimately, who did, who killed Jesus? Father. In fact, Isaiah tells us that. The father brought suffering upon his son. And Jesus, Jesus willingly endured that. Though he slay me, I would hope in him. If you're facing uncertainty in your life right now. Oh, I know, beloved, I've been there. Believe me, I want it resolved. <laughs> and man, I search high and low and I read the Bible and you talk to friends and you try to get counsel trying to resolve it. And sometimes God just doesn't want you to resolve it because the resolution is him, <laughs> right? If you're there and you need help, then here's your help. <laughs> Body and blood of Jesus. It's the gospel, folks. I want to ask the elders if they would now come forward now as we prepare our hearts to receive these means of grace that God has given us.